Hey there. Welcome back to The Kicker, CGR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm David Uberti, a staff writer for the Columbia Journal's Review, and your comrade as we go through this weekly journey through the house of mirrors that is today's media. we got a jam-packed show for you this week. We're starting with a news rundown from the latest on Tronk to Trump's assault on press norms to tweets that got journalists fired. Then we will turn to the New York Times deciding to end its public editor role. And finally, I will interview Simon Van Zwielen Wood, who wrote a great feature in CGR's latest issue about why local TV news is so lame. Joining me on the first two segments of my show is an all-star cast from CGR, my favorite people to have on the show, senior editor Christy Chisholm. Christy, how's it going? Oh, I feel very special now. Thank you. you. I, yeah. I like your nasty woman ring that you're wearing Oh, right now. I wear it every day. People can't see it right now, but it's big, chunky ring that says nasty woman and that's it. that's why we have you on the show here Stand by yeah it. yeah and then okay. also then also <laughs> delacorte fellow pete vernon uh he's author of cjr's daily newsletter the media today pete how's it going good good to be back so we've had an a, absolutely crazy week in media uh reporters getting choke slammed potential buyers for major newspapers the new york times deciding to end its public editor role we'll get into that in later depth but what are you looking at sort of for news of the week? What are the big stories that you're watching? Right. Memorial Day weekend did not provide much of a, a respite from the media news. The first thing we're looking at is the future of the Chicago Sun-Times, the city's oldest newspaper, which is up for sale. This is the paper that was home to Mike Royko and the original Ann Landers column, Rick Tellender, Roger Ebert, some of the biggest names in media. Basically, two weeks ago announced that it was putting itself up for sale that the Tribune, the Chicago Tribune, which is owned by a parent company called Trunk. Trunk. <laughs> uh, It'll never so, stop being It sounds funny. like a Neanderthal swear word. Right. Gone. <laughs> that Trunk had uh, an offer in, but that the um, government essentially was forcing the Sun-Times to present itself as up for sale. There'll be a two-week period to solicit offers. The Sun-Times had already asked around and assumed that there were not going to be any takers or anyone else interested and that everything would go smoothly with a sale to Trunk. That's not what's happened. Right. And there's certainly a lot of pushback from people within the Sun-Times who are worried about a takeover by their competition across town. I think those fears are probably warranted. You see with most instances of newspaper consolidation, a lot of companies basically trim down their back-end operations and also eliminate redundancies within their newsroom. Uh, on the other hand, I, I don't think that the Sun-Times probably has a viable business plan at this point. So I, I guess it's too early to be seen how this affects or potentially may affect the city of Chicago and the journalism provided to the city of Chicago, broadly speaking. Right. I think the general consensus is that the Sun-Times, at least as a print newspaper, is not long for Chicago. And this move to sell itself to Trunk could accelerate that process. Right. And, and, and just to finish here, this will be the, the latest large market that has gone from multiple newspapers to potentially one newspaper. New York still has multiple newspapers. The other largest market I can think of is Detroit, which has the Detroit Free Press and Detroit Philadelphia. News. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. <laughs> what am I talking about? I mean, like the, the Inky and, and the Daily yeah, News. They're owned they're by, not, yeah, one ownership, one but ownership. two separate papers that you know, have just ha seen an influx in philanthropic dollars. That might be the only way for cities with two newspapers to survive outside of New York. Yes, we'll be eagerly watching what's happening in Chicago. All right, what else are you watching this week? Moving further west, uh, last week, and today is Wednesday that we're recording this, so it was a week ago, news broke kind of mysteriously and late on Twitter. The Guardian's Ben Jacob 
published a tweet that said, Greg Gianforte just body slammed me and broke my glasses. And it kind of took a few minutes for people to pick up on this, but Greg Gianforte is the newest member of Congress from Montana. He won election the following day in a special election. And basically, Ben Jacobs had asked him a question about the American Health Care Act and the CBO score that had just come out about it. Gianforte hadn't taken a position. Gianforte obviously did not want to answer that question. So after telling Jacobs to get out, he quickly, or based on the audio tape, immediately grabbed Jacobs around the throat, threw him to the ground, broke his glasses, and this became a huge media story at the end of last week. And what yeah, you and we'll about talk to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if okay, you have to speak right with now. Shane, please. But you don't. Just... Sick and tired of you guys. The last Jesus. time you came here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Jesus. And, you know, you and, you and I, Pete, we were up till midnight that night trying to write CGR's take on it. And basically what we came uh, down on is that this is part of a larger and very frightening trend within American political culture. Yeah, I mean, the, the title that we chose for the piece that everyone should go read the actual piece and not just read headlines. But our headline was that uh, Montana congressman, or at that point candidate, had taken the phrase enemy of the people to its logical extension. Right. There's no directive coming down on high from President Trump to beat up journalists, but it's certainly implicitly condoning a more aggressive behavior towards journalists and journalism wholesale. One of our colleagues, Shelley Hepworth, did a great piece on CGR.org this week, basically just listing the Trump era assaults on press norms. I'll read a couple of them. Uh, just from the month of May, Rex Tillerson ditches the press pool. Trump told FBI Director James Comey he should imprison journalists who publish leaks. Trump rolls out the red carpet for the world's worst jailers of journalists, including Erdogan and Xi. Trump threatens to cancel White House press briefings. The Russian press were allowed into a meeting that was closed to the White House press corps. A reporter was arrested in West Virginia for asking questions of Trump officials. And Trump campaign attempts to broadcast an ad calling out fake news on cable news channels. That was just from the month of May. Individually, each of those things is a very small thing, a very small assault on press norms and the relationship we typically have with politicians. Uh, but over time, they, they seem to be adding up into something that's a little bit more sinister. Well, like any, like, I mean, not to take it too far, but like any abusive relationship, it doesn't start off out the gates being like this unhealthy abusive relationship. Everything starts off in this lovely little fashion, and then you slowly chip away at each other, and then it becomes this, like, I don't know, that's how it feels right now. Like, the press's relationship with the White House, it feels like, if not an abusive relationship, which is right. maybe too I, far. I, but, you know, I mean, body slamming reporters, that obviously is abuse. But I do think that that kind of unhealthy relationship that is being, I don't know. The tone is being set. Yes, the tone is being set. I think that relationship we may have jumped over the honeymoon phase to begin with. (laughs) Um, Okay, moving on. What else are you looking at? What's another story that you're watching this week, Pete? The other one uh, story that came out over the weekend was related to the Indy 500. We're really hitting the the Midwest and the kind of upper plains this week. Um, But basically a a Denver Post columnist, uh, after watching the Indy 500, I confess that I missed it, um, tweeted, nothing specifically personal, but I'm very uncomfortable with a Japanese driver winning the Indianapolis 500 during Memorial Day weekend. So that Denver Post columnist, Terry Frey, was summarily fired by the Post. And his response was in reference to Takuma Sato winning the Indy 500. But it it raises a larger question about journalists on social media and their responsibilities, the standards that 
are there or not there and, and whatever sort of line that was obviously crossed in this situation, just where does that line exist? Right. Do a quick Google search on journalists being fired over tweets and you will get dozens of results for people who said stupid things in the heat of the moment or in an attempt to make a bad joke and them getting either suspended or fired for doing so. I'm generally against uh, firing people for bad tweets. I think that's a little bit overboard and I think we're getting into dangerous territory with policing speech uh, and we have to think long and hard about what we're really outraged by, whether that's holding bad thoughts or expressing bad thoughts or the way in which we express bad thoughts. I just think it's murky territory. Uh, but before we move on, I just wanted to read you guys a couple of tweets that journalists have posted in the last few years and ask you whether you think they resulted in some sort of suspension or firing, a public reprimand, or nothing at all. I love it. It's a quiz. It's like a game. Right. I'm very happy. Right. Okay. This one, okay. this is from October 2015, CNN Global Affairs correspondent Elise Abbott referencing a legislative proposal to curtail the, the influx of Syrian refugees to the United States. She tweeted, quote, House passes bill that could limit Syrian refugees. Statue of Liberty bows head in anguish. Reprimand. Yeah, reprimand. I she was say. suspended for two weeks. Wow. Mm, yeah. All right, moving on. May 2017, Kurt Eichenwald, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, he tweets, this is in the heat of the American Health Care Act debate, he tweets, as one with pre-existing condition, I hope every GOPer who voted for Trump Care sees a family member get a long-term condition, lose insurance, and die. Whoa, that's bad. All right. Yeah, that's harsh. Uh-huh. I think I think Graydon Carter is more lenient than others, <laughs> and maybe he got a slight scolding. I would imagine suspension for that. No. Did he get fired? No, nothing. Nothing at all? No. Oh, my. Get away with a lot. Kind of nasty. All right, this is, this is my favorite one. April 2017, the Boston Herald reporter Chris Villani, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, who's covering the suicide of former NFL star turned convicted murderer Aaron Hernandez, he tweets. Oh, man, I don't even want to know. Quote, the notes found in Aaron Hernandez's cell were letters to his daughter and fiance saying he loved them and would see them in heaven, per source. This was Boston okay. Herald? Yeah. I know the answer to this. Christy? Oh, God. Ah, I've been wrong every He was suspended time. for three days. The but Bo- not because of the content, because he broke the, news on the Twitter. The Boston Herald's oh. social media policy says that if you're a reporter, you need to get express consent from a higher up in order to break news on Twitter. Wow. It does get into the interesting debate still about, you know, journalists' Twitter accounts and other everyone's Twitter accounts and, like, where the professional versus personal exactly. line is drawn, right? Because right. some of those you could argue, like, well, that was her, you know, bows, you know, Statue of Liberty bows head in anguish or whatever. That's, like, obviously her own personal opinion about right. that. But anyway. Yeah, Twitter actually exposes well, you, people to what journalists think. Truly, right? yeah. All right, final one, which will lead us into our next segment from March 2017. You guys might know this. After the rapper Bow Wow tweeted at President Donald Trump <laughs> that he and his uncle Snoop Dogg would, quote, pimp your wife, New York Times culture reporter Sopan Deb tweeted at the dog-themed parody account Bright Bark News, quote, the outrage from Bright Bark News is going to be through the woof. <laughs> <laughs> so I would what happened to him, Christy? Nothing happened. To no, him, what happened to him was that he received a scolding from the New York Times public editor. An entire column so from the public editor at the time saying that journalists should be more careful with their Twitter accounts. Oh, that's right. I remember that now. I think we're going to be getting into that in a minute. Yeah. It may have been picked as a segue. Mm-hmm. 
Moving on to our next segment, we had some breaking news before we came down to the podcast studio today. So close your eyes and imagine breaking news chirons flying in front of your face. The New York Times has announced that it's deciding to end its public editor role at its newspaper. Liz Spade is the current public editor. She's been much criticized for a number of columns that she's written over the last year or so during her tenure. And that has been contrasted sharply with how much her predecessor, Margaret Sullivan, was beloved in the newsroom. Now, just as a bit of a disclaimer before we continue with this conversation here, Liz was our former boss at CGR. She was our editor and publisher. She led the publication through a really tumultuous time, and she was a great mentor and friend to me. Uh, but moving on to the public editor role, more broadly speaking, she'll be the last public editor. Uh, the position was launched maybe 15 years ago or so in wake of the Jason Blair scandal. Pete, you've been on the phones all day trying to talk to people about the role of the public editor um, and sort of gauging and analyzing what the Times has, has said insofar as its reasoning. What exactly have they put out as, as, as why they're making this decision? Right. So the official word from the Times came in a memo from publisher Arthur Salzberger Jr. And basically his statement, his reason for doing this was that the public editor position had outgrown one office or outgrown the ability of one person to do the job. That in 2017, with critics to the left and right, with social media providing an easy avenue for feedback, this role was no longer needed. So I've spent the day talking with former public editors. There have been six people who hold this position, including Liz. Um, I've talked to three of them, including the initial public editor, Dan Okrent. All of them understand where Salzberger and the Times are coming from and eliminating this position, but they also caution that there are real things that could be lost here. There's value in having a voice in the newsroom, in a position of authority, who writes under the banner of the New York Times, offering up criticism. And I do think there's something lost in not having that voice of authority there at the Times. Mm -hmm. And I just want to quote another part of the memo that Salzberger sent out to staff here. He said, quote, our business requires that we must all seek to hold ourselves accountable to our readers. When our audience has questions or concerns, whether about current events or our coverage decisions, we must answer them ourselves. And that's a very admirable notion to me. And, and the Times has said it's going to expand its comment sections. It's launching a new reader center to be more engaged with his audience, to have more of a back and forth as opposed to a monologue uh, with the people that pay for its product. But I do think that you know something is lost. I mean, you can't just rely on social media for criticism. That will inevitably come. The interesting thing about the public editor is essentially that she got answers. If somebody made a decision that was either confusing or somewhat odd, just given the circumstances, she could actually make a beeline for those people in the newsroom and actually make sure that they got their responses on the record for readers, which I think it is going to be lost with this. Absolutely. I think there's also value in being able to cut through the noise of all the comments that are coming in. It's just, it's interesting that they say that the job has outgrown itself, really, or that like the need for the job has outgrown the position or whatever. So they're saying they need more than the one position. The one position isn't enough. But then their response to that is just eliminating it, which I understand how they're expanding in other ways. But I don't know. You'd think like maybe add another person to that rather than have only the one. Like if it's outgrown, then you can expand things but still have someone leading the charge. I don't, it reminds me a little bit of um, moderating comments on news sites, you know, and saying like, oh, well, there are too many comments for us to have like one person moderate. So we're just not going to have comments anymore. We're just not going to moderate them or we're just going to like, I don't know, outsource it. 
I think that we are going to be losing something. And also, the t- we were talking about this in the office earlier, that the New York Times is in a position where it could probably afford to not have the public editor position. But at the same time, the Times is supposed to be a model of journalistic excellence. And so what are they modeling if they're saying that the need for that position doesn't exist anymore, that they aren't willing to devote resources to it anymore? Yeah, it's a position that a lot of papers have gone away from. The Washington Post eliminated their ombudsman position four years ago, I think. Uh, Marty Barron's been pretty outspoken about not seeing the need for it and how everyone in the newsroom, reporters, editors, should be responsive to and engaging with critics. I mean, I think there is some value in that, in that on social media, people can respond immediately. One of the former Times public editors, Barney Kalame, told me that he always viewed reporters writing letters at one point and now responding on social media as the ideal. He said, whenever I saw reporters doing that sort of thing, I thought that'll put the public editor out of business. And there is something nice about that personal interaction with the reporter writer of a story. I wonder if the ability to hold the leadership's feet to the fire is still going to exist because Dean Baquet is not sitting around on Twitter responding to reader comments. Yeah. And I think there's something about you know, when you're talking about individual stories, having an interaction with the reporter and like like readers being able to interact directly with the reporter who wrote the piece, that's really valuable. And I do think that reporters should be engaged on social media, engaged in the letters section or comment section and, you know, like her, the guidelines of the paper that they work for or whatever. But when you're talking about bigger picture issues with an organization that's as large as the Times. I mean, I feel like that's what the public editor position is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about the larger trends happening in the industry and happening at that paper. And that's not something that an individual reporter is going to be able to respond to. Right. It just seems a little bit too pie in the sky to me. Like the idea that journalists will hold themselves accountable to readers. I think that's good. That's something we should all strive for. But at the end of the day, nobody wants to admit their mistakes and and air them in a very public way. That's just human nature. And I think to be fair, you know, in my experience, covering journalists for a living, I think journalists themselves embody some of the worst traits that are the least favorite traits about the sources or subjects that they cover. Uh, so I think it behooves news organizations and probably news organizations' readers to have someone who's independent of them who can actually you know, publicly air all of these potential controversies uh, in, a, in a way that's transparent. Especially I, when it comes, sorry, just to like the size and the influence of that paper, too. I mean, not every paper can afford to have that. Not certainly. every paper should have it. But you're looking at one of the most influential newspapers in the world, arguably the most. If anybody should have it, it seems like, I mean, it makes sense for them to have it. I don't know. Right. And I, I will also just add uh, that anyone who's spent any time on Twitter knows how New York Times reporters respond to criticism on Twitter. They close ranks rather than open themselves up to criticism. And so I, I just don't think that that's... You know, I don't think it's a one-for-one trade-off, basically. I'm happy that they're expanding other efforts to engage the readership, but I don't think that they are replacing what has been lost with this. Fox 2 News. News that works for you. Starts now. Criminals walk off with flat-screen TVs belonging to a single mother. Then they taunt her by texting images of the stolen goods. If you were a budding media critic like I was as a child, you'd end your day by brushing your teeth, putting on your pajamas, and watching the local TV news. 
Fox 2 Detroit was part of my daily routine for years. It still is for my parents. And whenever I go home to visit, I can rest assured that the nightly newscast goes on in basically the same form as I remember growing up. Local TV news is frozen in time, and we had a great feature about why that's the case in our latest issue. Its author, Simon Van Zwielen Wood, joins me now to discuss it further. Simon, how's it going? Hi, David. I love this story, which we will post in our, in our show notes after this show, and sort of the nut graph of your piece, which I'm going to quote from here. You say, the problem with local TV news isn't that the product is partisan or under-resourced or, quote, fake. The problem is that it's lame. What exactly do you mean by that? What's interesting about local TV news is that in some ways it's doing just fine. As you said, you could still tune in, you know, as your parents do and as you do when you go home. And it's financially doing uh, not bad as well, which we can get into a little later on. What makes it lame is, is precisely that it's in this sort of state of stasis. It hasn't changed since when you were a kid, basically. You've got sort of a couple plasticky uh, news anchors sitting in front of a teleprompter, sort of reciting their lines, basically. It's very formulaic. You've got the, if it bleeds, it leads, uh, crime and, and uh, smash and grab break-in stories. Right. You've got weather. Right. Uh, sometimes you have sports. At the beginning, you've got the sensationalistic stories. At the end, you have the puff pieces. Somewhere in the middle, you uh, have the, the forecast. It's been like that for 40 years. And the, the, the question I was trying to answer in the piece is why uh, everything else in the news sort of ecosystem has been changing so fast and with such volatility, and yet you turn on Fox 2, uh, and it looks the same as it always did. Right. My, my favorite bit from Fox 2, they had sort of a you know civic do-gooder unit where they, they would call themselves the problem solvers, and they'd go around to local right. businesses that were scamming people, and they'd put them in the hall of shame. You're in the hall of shame. It was a perfect little snapshot of the, yeah. the, the ironic nature of some of this. So you said it's been the same basic format for 40 years. I mean, what's, what's the history of that? How did they land on, on this yeah. format? So there, like, there was a time where like, local news was actually even lamer when it kind of looked, I think, what a typically Cronkiteian broadcast, you know, when you imagine sort of a Walter Cronkite right. figure, sort of like a mustachioed kind of... Buttoned up. Buttoned up, madman era kind of thing. And they, that was, I mean, it was even less dynamic. Basically, there was, there was no sort of on-the-ground reporting going on, so there, there'd be no footage. They might pipe out some stock footage, you know, from, from around the country or something, but basically it was you're staring at this guy in the for whatever reason, Philadelphia became the incubator for in the 60s and 70s. When you watch the news, sometimes it says action news or eyewitness news. Sure. I always thought they were kind of sort of just buzzwords. But when I was doing research into the story, I realized that they actually used to mean something. Eyewitness news was the first sort of innovator in the 60s, and it was like a CBS affiliate in Philadelphia. Uh, and basically the idea was let's send people out into the street and do the sort of man-on-the-street reporting. Mm. That was really different, actually, at the time. And so that was the big innovator. A rival station five years later in Philly an ABC affiliate try to play catch up by creating action news, the sort of more fast-paced, hard-hitting progenitor of the "if it bleeds, it leads" stuff that you see now. Right. Um, and th- those four, basically, there's the DNA of action or eyewitness news has persisted in pretty much every local TV newscast in the country, whether it's called that or not. And, and I would say since the 60s or 70s, when those two forms were created, 
nothing's really changed since then. There was a time when it was really cool. It was really different. <laughs> right. and, uh, and unfortunately, nobody's bothered to innovate since then for the most part. It makes me think of a, a film that I could quote line by line when I was a teenager, which was Anchorman in the heyday of, of you know, local TV news in the 70s. Good evening. I'm Ron Burgundy, and this is what's happening in your world tonight. A La Jolla man clings to life at a university hospital after being viciously attacked by a pack of wild dogs in an abandoned pool. Yeah, no, Anchorman, I mean, Anchorman was like, was sort of the eyewitness model, where it was kind of chummy and folksy, and one of their big innovations is that they got the rights to the theme music from Cool Hand Luke. I don't know, I mean, I don't want to, like, make our, our grandparents seem like, you know, total hokey uh, whatever, but uh, people thought that was really neat. Yeah. Uh, uh, needless to say, I mean, there's, you know, it's not Cool Hand Luke anymore, but it's like, you know, that kind of... Uh, important sounding music um, and it's just it, it was just such a trip it was like going back in time I, for the story I went down to Jacksonville which for reasons that aren't worth getting into are kind of kind of a unique TV market so I went down there and a lot of them did good news I mean the Hall of Shame stuff can serve its purpose you know th- it's not like local TV stations are just have these Ron Burgundy types uh, only there's there is reporting going on but it's in the root it's in this sort of outdated rubric mm. sort of the problem in like 22 minutes per half hour, you're meant to do a day's worth of, or a half day's worth of, of news, and you have to do it while obeying these, these unwritten rules about uh, theme music and, and puff pieces and weather, and, you know, why? Why are we still doing it that way? Right, and one of the interesting subtexts that you bring up is that for, you know, much of this format's history, they would all, oftentimes follow local newspapers, metro newspapers, which would do sort of the deep dive investigative yeah. work, whereas in the last 10 years or so, a lot of those newspapers have atrophied, and those are the prime primary news generators in many towns and cities across the country. So there seems to be an opening for a more robust uh, local TV news presence, but that's not necessarily the case. The stakes just used to be lower. I mean, if you wanted your, your public interest accountability journalism done, you turn to the papers. Now you're kind of in a lot of communities in, in, in most regional cities, uh, regional areas, you have to, um, you have to turn to the, to the TV. I mean, there's nothing else at this point. Um, and and the, the, for me, the, there's like a twofold crisis, which is one, there's an opportunity here, right? As you said, they could pick up the slack. Their profit margins are healthy enough, by and large, that there's money lying around to do that kind of investigative work. They're not, or, or you know, forget investigative work, just sort of you know, nuts and bolts of political reporting that the newspapers aren't doing anymore. And the other crisis is that even though right now finances are stable, you know, we've got a cord-cutting sort of revolution mm. in our midst. We've got a, a migration to much smaller idiot boxes, right, right. like in our pockets. Right. Um, and local TV news is not adapting to that either. Right. So why is that? You have this formulaic product that hasn't changed in decades. In the last t- 10 years or so, I feel like the rate of technological and demographic change within media and media consumption respectively has just been insane yeah. and newspapers have really been trying to make up lost ground in that regard i mean why haven't local tv news stations followed suit it's counterintuitively it's because things are kind of going okay in the short term which is which you know disincentivizes the, the impetus to radicalize right. the, the model meaning there's these factors that have nothing to do with all these demographic changes and these, these viewing habit changes. So it's a little wonky, but like, if you bear with me, there's something called retransmission fees. This is like an FCC thing that was basically grandfathered in like a little more than a decade ago. And it, it, it's basically this kind of revenue sharing uh, agreement that I won't get into, but it's essentially just like it's been free money for local TV stations for the last decade plus. 
if the cord cutting stuff keeps happening and cable providers make less money, those revenues are going to fall as well. So, mm. so on the horizon, I don't think the retransmission fees are going to be so juicy. The second thing is Citizens United decision have basically instituted an era of like a lot of political spending, and that's mm. trickled down to local TV stations where a lot of the ads broadcast. There's also these other bigger pressures. There's a lot of corporate consolidation happening. A quarter to a third of, of all the local TV stations in the country are basically owned by a handful of big TV conglomerates. Mm. Um, and what happens is that when you have a lot of TV stations under your ownership group, uh, you can consolidate and you can create efficiency. So basically, if you want to sort of jump to like, what's the big story out of Washington, you just flip to one report from one bureau. So the more TV stations you own, you, don't, you know, you don't have to create a new bureau for each of those TV stations. You just jump to your, your man or your woman in Washington. Right. It's the same, si- similar business logic to, you know, newspapers consolidating with, say, Gannett or Tribune also. So basically, there's all these ways that, like, they can cut costs. It allows them to save money and stay robust, but without really meaningfully adapting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just to recap, so Sinclair Broadcasting made a move in May to buy Tribune Media. Sinclair already owns about 170 local TV stations. Tribune would give them about 40 or so more, and this would make them by far the largest owner yeah. of local TV stations in the country, and that obviously comes with tremendous power. Is the Sinclair move sort of a blip on the radar, or is that part of a larger trend toward consolidation? Basically, there's been three big waves in the last decade of corporate consolidation, 2006, 2013, and now we might be seeing another one. Mm. Um, the new chairman of the FCC has been open to these sort of mergers and consolidations in a way that the, the latest Obama-era FCC chairman was not, so maybe we'll see more. It seems like it'd be hard to consolidate more at this point. Um, right. uh, this one might be a blip, but it also could be the start of, of a new wave. Now, is there any way to evaluate how that affects stations' journalism? With Sinclair, for yeah. example, the, the sort of criticism or, I guess, fear is, has been that Sinclair, which is a conservative-leaning media company, will force its member stations to run certain packages that have certain points of view. Right. Um, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the the broader fear of consolidation, but I'm, I'm kind of curious in your research, has there been any sort of study of, of whether that affects the journalism of these stations? It's hard to evaluate because it's sort of a qualitative thing, sure. whether, a, uh, whether a segment is conservative or not. But certainly if Sinclair has, has a D.C. bureau that it's thought to be leaning you know, right, and then that D.C. bureau is broadcasting out to 150 stations across the country, that's going to reflect a certain viewpoint. I mean, it's probably not it's not going to look like propaganda, but it's probably going to be, you know, there's certain kind of stories that are going to get emphasized over others. Uh, but I think the broader fear that people have is less competition mm. as anywhere is just going to equal less good journalism, right. less, less incentive. Right. So to me, these trends, all of them combined, are just eerily similar to the newspaper industry over the last couple of decades or so. Fat profit margins, incredible corporate consolidation in order to maximize those profits further, and then a glacial pace of innovation because, hey, we have shareholders and they need to let the good times roll. When you were reporting this piece, were the folks in TV news you spoke with cognizant of that history or perhaps open to the notion that they're going to need to go digital Uh, really fast, really soon? Barely. One of the refrains I heard all the time, which is just sort of shocking, was when I'd say, well, what, you know, they say like, you know, they say mobile and digital as much as like they're supposed to be saying those words. But it was always, <laughs> it was always in the context of like, yeah, we're going to, we have, you know, we have a mobile app, but the mobile app is just going to funnel viewers back to TV. <laughs> so it's like, you're going to get a bing in your pocket and you're going to say, hey, what's going on in the six o'clock news? Right. And, I, and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know anyone of my generational cohort, you know, I'm in my late twenties who thinks that way. Right. Um, it is rare that I turn on the TV to, to look at local news. And, and certainly if I get an, a, a push notification in my pocket, 
I'm just going to keep staring at my phone and <laughs> try to find the news out that way. It was sort of alarming. And I would suggest, you know, I, I got to this point where I started worrying. And I would, like, just, I couldn't stop myself. I'd be in these meetings with local news people, and I'd say, like, well, you know, do you, have you ever thought about using your excess profit margins to hire digital-only reporters who could just build out, do what the newspapers used right. to do? Right, many of whom were out of work. Many of whom were out of work. They need jobs, you know. <laughs> and, and they would kind of say, um... I don't know if it doesn't if it doesn't sort of help the core product, which is TV. I don't see our bosses going for it. Especially you mentioned earlier, David, that a lot of these TV stations are corporate owned. There are shareholders who are who maybe don't want to see an experiment with digital news. They right. just want to see, you know, quarterly revenue numbers that look stable. Um, so that's another problem. There's a, and and that goes also back to what you said about some of the bigger newspaper chains. Yeah, uh, so it's a classic innovator's dilemma, right? Why make these massive investments in digital when I can reap dividends now uh, and then sell off my shares later? Exactly. I mean, you know, there, there are a few, like, fun examples. I mean, you mentioned Fox in Detroit. That was Charlie LaDuff's station. Yeah, he's, he's sort of a local hero from the work he did there, doing segments in bathtubs, golfing across the city. Oh, right from the get-go, I'm realizing this here might be the stupidest idea I've ever had. It's 100 degrees, I'm wearing black, and I can't golf. But I'm committed because they're talking to reinventing this city. What that was really that outside the box for any local news station that I've seen. I swear I didn't know, David, that you were going to mention Fox, too. Because I, I was thinking about Charlie Ledoff, and I almost mentioned him in the story, but he was actually so much of an outlier that yeah. I didn't. And, and that stuff really traveled online as well, too. Those, yeah. those things went viral in a way that I haven't seen other other yeah. TV hits. I have, no, I have no connection to Detroit, and I learned about corrupt figures in, in the Detroit municipal government because Charlie Ledoff's stuff was so good that it traveled. What's another thing that I didn't mention in the piece, which is interesting? There's a local station out of North Jersey, NJ9. It, it, it's, it's, it's a show called Chasing the News. They decided to do like a TMZ type thing mm. where they have cameras inside the newsroom and they have all these like telegenic young reporters. And, you know, they, they even have a guy holding like a Slurpee cup or whatever just to like replicate the whole <laughs> TMZ right. aesthetic. And it's actually kind of fun. You see the young reporter going down the street trying to do an investigative piece. On a more staid level, there is a... CBS affiliate PRI in Providence, Rhode Island, where they hired two really good print-style reporters to, to build out a digital-only team. Um, and those guys are like the scoop meisters of state and city government in Providence and Rhode Island. I haven't seen anyone doing what those two guys are doing in Providence. And I've got to imagine they're relatively cheap compared to like a baggy 35-year veteran right. news anchor. That's expensive talent. Seems like a, a huge potential opportunity. We'll be eagerly watching to see if anyone reaps the benefits for it. The piece is on CJR.org. We will include it in our show notes. The author is Simon Van Zwielen Wood. Simon, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, David. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Please subscribe, comment on, and share our shows wherever you get your podcasts. And also go to CJR.org. we got a lot of great stuff for you. Thanks again for kicking with us. We'll see you next week.